Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. On today's episode, seeing is believing. We are going to explore the evidence in favor of training at what I believe is the correct lactate threshold. Frame that in the context of the fact that there really maybe aren't any zones at all. Is this a conspiracy theory? Is this secretly a flat earther, truther movement in disguise? Let's find out. Let's get into today's episode. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cat's Run. On today's episode, Seeing is Believing, what I want to talk about and explore with you is this concept that I'm calling the aerobic calculator. I think that oftentimes it's hard to see that our training is working, and we're left to sort of believe in the symbolic power of the supposedly transformative quality of the training that we're applying, even though we won't necessarily know. And really, when you look at the way practice in training and coaching has developed over time, we apparently aren't even supposed to be able to know until we get to the race. My suggestion is something different. I think that if you train at the right intensity, you should be able to clearly model improvement and how you can do this and then use that knowledge to train in a responsive way where you can see what's happening as you go and make adjustments and get more out of your training, find the time you invest more worthwhile, more rewarding, get better race results without having to wait for the race to sort of test the hypothesis, right, that is any given training model that functions as a hypothesis, that is the scope of this episode. So today's episode, seeing is believing. How can we learn to perceive the development in our training and how and what approaches to intensity are going to make that possible? I think that most of us get into athletics and sustain an interest, especially in individual endurance sports, because 
there's something sort of romanticized and exciting and adventurous about pursuing these kinds of goals and that sense of becoming something more than we are, I think is driving. It, it is an addictive, that sense of developing mastery, but you know, we don't want to end up tilting at windmills and, you know, a lot of us, unfortunately find our way to that point eventually. And it's not always an easy process. Sometimes it's like climbing a mountain where you're sort of struggling to feel like you're making any progress despite all of the suffering that you are enduring. And when you reach that next horizon on that ascent, it can sort of make it all worthwhile. But there's also that sense of where is the summit? How far should I be able to go? Am I heading in the right direction? Do I have the right equipment, the right possibilities uh, to empower myself in that process? And, you know, again, right, when we can't have that experience and that outcome, it becomes very frustrating very quickly. And the scale of intensity as we look at this stuff is one of the problems, right? How hard do we really need to to be going, right? We can be working to the point of exhaustion. Some people will push themselves to the point of throwing up. I think in swimming culture in particular is where I still hear a lot of stories about puking as being a benchmark and, you know, including in youth swimming programs that barfing is somehow a sign that you're, you're pushing yourself. I don't believe that that is correct. I think that should obviously be a physiological indicator of distress. I mean, I think you can go to the point of absolute failure beyond that, where your entire body just is on fire and everything is like, you know, you're burning the house down. But if you believe strongly enough that your methodology, your approach, that if you believe in the power of the system of symbols that really is any given training plan or set of training ideas, we will persevere through that. You know, the point where sometimes we feel like we're literally killing ourselves and we're not making any progress. We're just not really getting anywhere. And that can be, you know, overwhelming and demoralizing. And I think some people will just continue to sustain to that point. And then some of us dispositionally might continue to just sort of engage in this pattern. And I think other people get burnt out and athletic culture sort of encourages us to perceive that experience of burnout and loss of interest as some sort of sign of personal failure, some sort of evidence of an inability to have what it takes. And, you know, I think the internet and social media has really helped to show the extent to which a people do regard athletics as this process by which we overcome absolute impossibility through a sheer act of will and the extent to which we're teaching and reinforcing that notion and you know probably maybe extending that and popularizing that more than we should but if we think about how hard we train i think these sort of ideas of you know heroic uh, endeavor and sort of you know epic showdown um, you know, with the given workout or the training session, I think is moving ourselves in the wrong direction, even if it is, you know, been well established as kind of the traditional approach. 
to this sort of stuff. So I think if we look at this in a simpler, more essential sort of way, what is the basic concept of the scale of exertion? Well, I think at the predominant starting point is endurance, right? Increasing your ability to tolerate some minimum level of work, the ability to cover a given amount of distance, the ability to maintain a pattern of movement. Nordic skiing, swimming, cycling, running, race walking. I mean, the list of endurance sports is is quite long. And all of these, you know, have this characteristic in common, right? How long can I maintain this unique pattern of physicality, physical movement that is this sport? And then the next layer to this, of course, become speed, right? And that we progress then to the ability of, well, how fast can I get over these distances? And I think this simple logic of its endurance, but ultimately you're trying to perform faster leads to this training model of an endurance speed paradigm. And, you know, that that becomes sort of the arrow of progress over time, you know, when the drill bit by which we sort of engage and move deeper into that possibility, right? This is how we're continuing to climb and make the ascent up that metaphorical mountain. But, you know, the other things that's true here is when we look at this sort of structure of endurance and speed, I think we also find that a gross minority of the population is the sort of demographic, the ruling class of this paradigm. They're sort of king of the hill. And I think... And this is a subjective evaluation on my part. It could be true, it might not be true, but I, it seems like it's maybe at best 10% of the population seems to really thrive when the training paradigms that are you know popular and accepted practice today are applied. And I think even among that population, and this is why even though the 10% is an evaluation that I'm sort of conjuring up and applying here, I think that even among that percentage of the population, I think there's a lot of, you know, conflicted feeling there. And you, I've talked about in other episodes on the podcast that one area where I see this is narrative of burnout and loss of interest in cyclists. And you see this on, you know, American publication uh, Velo News all the time. You know, everybody quitting, hating cycling. And I have can't fathom that, but I think I've come to believe more and more that it's this sense of, impossibility with the expectations of training. And even if it's quote unquote working for them, either in the sense that they're experiencing progress or just in the sense that even if you apply a, you know, ineffectual training program to everybody, there's going to be a resultant hierarchy of performance. Just like if you take elementary school students and you have them run a one mile run in physical education and these kids are not doing any sort of real exercise routine or program, there's going to be a hierarchy. They're not all going to run in synchronization and finish at the same time. And, you know, for 90% of us, though, I think that it's more pronounced because we're not really climbing into that point of ascendancy. And I think an interesting parallel that sort of is informing my 10%, 90% is um, I think in the United States every year, it's about a quarter of a million uh, public school students will run cross country every fall. And of that group, maybe about 7% of them will go on and try to keep running um, for four more years uh, in, in college. And obviously there's other factors at play, but 
you know, I, I think that even among that population, that 7%, I think there's a strong sense of frustration and, and sense of like, I'm not attaining what I feel like I should be able to do, but is it sort of an expression or an articulation of, you know, ego almost to see this to be the case. But these people at the top, that sort of becomes the group that we really stare at and focus on and obsess over. And, you know, culturally, we've labeled these people as, you know, the elite and, you know, how they get to the point of being elite. What are their practices? You know, what are their methods? I think, you know, is is complicated. And I think the perception, again, is that, you know, they're either driving themselves to exhaustion, you know, they're puking, they're immolating themselves. And, you know, you and you'll see now, um, thanks to YouTube and stuff, in some instances, people just, you know, basically, you know, going out there and, you know, in the metaphor of, of the endurance sports vernacular, just dying, you know, out there in these sessions. And it really creates the notion that it's the capacity to not just like resist, you know, the intense nature of exercise, but to like internally generate that kind of intensity. And I think for some people, the sense is like, well, I can't even train that hard in the first place. And, you know, those narratives of exertion are really popular and really compelling. And, you know, I certainly feel that this has been largely true of my experience with trying to do this stuff for, you know, most of my, I mean, I started doing, I would say when I was 10 and when I was 10 years old is when I joined a swim team. And, you know, from that point to now, so it's been about 24 years, um, you know, I've been continuously engaged uh, in this stuff, you know, and to different extents and different disciplines. And, you know, I would say overall, I've been, you know, largely disappointed. I think you know, I've, I've enjoyed the activities enough to not give up and, and want to stop doing them. But from a performance perspective, I've been largely disappointed. And, you know, there have been a lot of years, um, you know, since I left doing interscholastic athletics where you have a competition schedule and you basically have to do it that, you know, I've really had no interest in competing because I've, you know, been disillusioned with the experience. And so, you know, one of those problems is when you have an alienation of labor, which you can experience alienation of labor within the context of your own training, when you're putting in a lot of work and uh, you're not seeing any results develop from that, that can be very difficult. That can be very frustrating. And so one of the exercises I did the other day um, thought exercise as I was looking at some data and from some adjustments I had made to my running um, going back to the beginning of July. And I've shared this on other episodes and I've um, posted some of this data on our Instagram page at Black Cats Run. You're welcome to check that out if you would like to. But one of the findings I had is I went back um, in, I think it was October 5th. Um, I had agreed to do the Marine Corps uh, marathon, you know, per the request of a friend of mine uh, who was from the area. And, you know, I was sort of ambiguous about it. I figured, why not? You know, I, I don't identify as a marathoner per se, but I do identify as an endurance athlete. And my feeling is if it's an endurance event, I basically can do it. And maybe I'm not going to always do it up to my level of proficiency, but I've kind of changed my mindset a little bit to, you know, if I always have this idea of I can't race unless I've figured it out and I'm in awesome fitness, the reality is life is just going to keep passing you by and you're going to never go out and do that. So I've sort of tried to, 
you know, work with a more open mind about, you know, what I'm going to go out and do races and events if I feel like doing it and I'm not really going to worry about my, what my level of performance is. And it doesn't mean I'm not going to try to prepare, but if I'm like, well, I haven't executed the perfect imaginary marathon block, uh, then I'm not going to do it. And so this is some data um, that stretches over a 278-day period from October 5th, um, which is like a month out from the Marine Corps Marathon, um, all the way through to the end of June of this year. So October 5th of 22 to the end of June of 23. And these are all of the workouts that I did um, through that time. Each of these uh, points is a workout, and it's the average speed for the workout. And this is what I accomplished. And when I worked through this process, what did we see? Right. Well, when we see, when we look at the data, that I actually experienced generally a trend towards regression. And, you know, to the extent that there's really much of a trend at all, like there really isn't even a trend. And now the whole point, and that doesn't, you know, invalidate the fact there's a regression. The whole point of training is to progress. And to the extent that there's a clear trend, it's a trend of getting slower. And you can see how widely dispersed, you know, the data points are. And, you know, by the standard of this graph, I more or less regressed from working out at uh, 6.55 to 7-minute pace to, you know, being able to work out at 7.15 pace. And I would also point out that another concept of this is, you know, in theory, if I wanted to go out and do all of these as hard as I could, uh, I would do that. But this represented me trying to back off and adjust my intensity because I think a lot of us take a look at lactate threshold stuff and we say, okay, you know, the key thing here is to go a little bit easier. And so this is me trying to go easier and trying to follow more of that, you know, uh, lactate threshold trend. And I would say that, you know, if you've listened to other episodes on the pod, you would already know this. Um, so bear bear with me as I repeat this, but I would say I'm basically a uh, reformed or recovered kind of, you know, when you want to kind of call it FTP or 60 minute, um, you know, power uh, person. Whereas I, I used to subscribe to that as an interpretation of aerobic capacity and aerobic fitness. And I've now really recognized that this is not the case. And, you know, what I want to be showing you here today is that, you know, this is not really a valid approach training at this higher level intensity. And I believe that the issue is that we need to pull back more. And I want to show you how by training slower than I literally ever have in running, going back to when I was in eighth grade, when I was whatever, 13 years old, and I first started running uh, competitively, I have never trained this slow, um, ever. And I'm not talking about the 278-day graph. I'm talking about... Um, what I have done since July over the last nine or so weeks. And, you know, I think for me, a lot of times the mindset was the more that I go out and crush myself, the better that I'm going to be. And I've, you know, tried to think more dynamically now about what the scale of exertion is, you know, and that what's the true scale of exertion? How hard is it really supposed to be? Um, well, I think the range, if we're being objective, is it has to be somewhere between lying down and just sort of talking or thinking about training and hoping that the idea of free associating about the possibility of training uh, will make us better, to absolutely destroying ourselves as much as possible to the nth degree. 
And, you know, rationally, then it has to be somewhere not at one of those extremes. And I think what's interesting is the totally destroying yourself concept should be just as much of an extreme to people as is the notion of lying on the couch and thinking that just thinking exercise thoughts will improve your fitness and your performance. But I think if you really were to try to in some way survey people and have them sort of scale that on a scale of, you know, one to a hundred, one being lying on the couch, a hundred being setting yourself on fire and running on a treadmill. Um, I think people would probably scale closer towards the treadmill than the couch, which is ironic because actually uh, lying on the couch is probably better for performance. Like you're, you know, you'd probably be better off doing nothing than working to absolute physical failure because if you worked absolute physical failure, your capacity to go out and do work is actually going to be more limited than if you do nothing because you, you will have created a level of fatigue that will limit what your muscles could do if they're totally rested, will limit what your body could do if you're rested. And if your muscles are fatigued, then you are limiting that, that concept of speed. And you know, if we think back to that idea of endurance speed, right? the notion is that you need speed to improve your endurance. And my suggestion is that actually the issue is that we have the speed. And this isn't necessarily an original observation, though I think anybody can um, recognize this as a, as a logical conclusion. But to give a, a historical uh, context to this, there's an interview on YouTube um, with Arthur Lydiard towards the end of his life. And you know, they're asking about, well, how did you develop these ideas? And you know, what was your inspiration? And he said that he read um, a book about training that was written in the 1930s. And he was reading this, I think, in like the 40s or the 50s. And, um, you know, he said there weren't a lot of books about training then. People weren't really writing much. And I, I would say today there still aren't very many books about training that are worth reading or are saying anything original or thought-provoking. Um, but he said that he looks at this stuff and what he's recognized um, in reading this author is the author suggested that there are plenty of quarter milers who could run the quarter mile in close to 45 seconds. I don't know what the world record was at the time the book was published, but you know, it was not, it was norm, right? And you see that today, right? You have high school kids, you know, you get a small population size. I think in probably any high school, if you take any population of 300 kids to 500 kids for, you know, boys, you can probably find um, a kid who can just kind of go out and run the quarter mile and under, um, and under 40 seconds. And if you take maybe a similar population for girls, you can probably go out and find somebody who can probably run the quarter mile or the quarter mile in under 60 seconds, right? So it's really not that scarce to find people who can run that fast, even if they're totally untrained. And Lydia said, the author said that, you know, but how many people you can find who can just run a 60 four times in a row, 60 second quarter? And the guys, well, there are none, right? Because this is well before the four minute mile. And it's not like people were down to four flat at that point when that, that um, author was writing. And Lydiard said that for him was basically, and I'm paraphrasing, but was that was his sort of epiphany was that, okay, we need to develop the stamina. Like all this focus on speed isn't the issue. And so that's where I think one of the first big moments, in ter- especially in terms of a moment that got sort of extended outward to the um, broader athletic audience that, okay, we need to use uh, endurance. And one of the words that Lydiard uses is stamina, though. 
And I'm going to come back to that later because I think this endurance, slow, speed, fast, the goal is to be fast. And so like ultimately speed makes you better and endurance is sort of this thing that you kind of check off. Um, I think that that dichotomy in and of itself is an example of a limiting concept. So when we look at this and we say, well, aerobic, what does that mean? Where does that really come from? Well, I think that when you look at the currently most popular um, conventional accept, um, accepted, shall we say, norms of how to define this, I, I find my conclusion is that it's about defined, seems to be defined between 30 minutes to 90 minutes. So best 30 minutes to best 90 minute intensity. And, you know, another way you could think about that, if you want to think about it from a runner perspective, you might say your 10,000 meter PR to your half marathon best. Or in cycling, you would say, well, your functional threshold power, um, you know, or your lactate threshold too, right? And, but then people will perseverate around, well, how fast is functional threshold power? And I think functional threshold power would sort of trend more towards, I know people a lot of times say 60 minutes, but I think a lot of times they're really ultimately testing something that's probably more representative of what somebody could do for 30 minutes because they said, well, ride 20 minutes to failure and take 95% of that. But I think if you've ever tried that, and I've tried it, and it's awful and totally useless because then you go and you say, okay, let me put this into these tables and charts and you try, okay, I should do workouts at this intensity and you stick it to the wall in front of you in the basement in the winter when it's time to ride on the trainer indoors and you're like, yep, this is not working. And then it just sort of sits there and you look at it sometimes you're like, yeah, I remember when I thought that this was going to really make the difference for me this winter and I was going to be a new athlete in the spring. And then I think towards the other end, you sort of see this lactate threshold too. And, um, you know, which is something that presumably is slower because it's associated with, you know, more like maybe 90 minutes and, you know, some people suggesting that elite marathoners are running close to their uh, lactate threshold. And I think the reality is when we look at this, this is kind of a mad scientist phenomenon, which, you know, and I say mad scientist with humor, but I think there's a large extent towards which these um, scientific paradigms of evaluation have taken over the concept of, of how we train. And, you know, other people have talked about in their perspective, um, you know, on this and their, you know, books that they've written, like Steve Magnus talked, you know, about how there's this, you know, there's very much a disconnect oftentimes between, you know, science and, and coaches and this sort of resentment of, you know, both groups think that training is sort of their domain and they're the ones who figure it out. And that, you know, by sort of seeding the possibility of knowledge to these other groups, um, that we won't really, that, you know, somehow they're losing face or they're losing value. So if we just think about this from like the, the pure science perspective um, of like, well, training is something that should follow the process of experimentation. And if a training theory is valid, then we need some way to back that up. Or that if training is changing the body, then we need to identify the physiology and then we target the physiology. Um, you know, one how, and this is stuff that really has driven the development of these sort of defined spectrums of training intensity. And, you know, one example of this, um, which is, I think, one of the more recent attempts uh, at doing this, which has gained a lot of traction then in in popular training culture, at least among people who, you know, maybe more serious intent about training is this concept of maximum lactate steady state. And uh, if you're familiar with this, you may have seen a graph that looks something like this, where there's four lines and, um, you know, 
the sort of bottom three lines, the lactate initially goes up and then it's sort of level for the duration. And then there's a, like a fourth line where the lactate makes its initial jump and then it just sort of continues to go up across. And then the conclusion is, well, you know, that line, the highest line where it stayed steady the whole way, that is the maximum lactate steady state. And I think the extent to which that's true is somewhat limiting. Because when you look at that other line of, you know, well, hey, what's really going on here? I think that what we, and by the other line, right, because now we're talking about four lines, right? So we need to keep track of this. So let's just focus on the top two lines. The highest intensity at which the lactate is steady, and then this next step at which the lactate wasn't steady, but it accumulated across the duration of the test. So I think if you're going to use the word steady, and you're going to use lactate, then it is correct to say that um, that third line um, or the highest line at which the lactate is even, you would have to say that's steady lactate. That's technically correct. But is that really something that we can derive a training intensity from? Because, you know, I think that obviously um, if we're going to run shorter durations of harder efforts, then, you know, there's going to be metabolic stability, which is what's sort of stig- uh, signified to us by that even line, okay? And if, though, you've done this stuff and you've worked out at this high intensity, which is ultimately what maximum lactate steady state does, is it points to something, you know, around 10K intensity or whatever. And, you know, because one argument is, well, you know, the reason why the lactate is accumulating throughout thing is because that's an absolute, you know, all out effort, right? And then the question would be, you know, what's happening to velocity? Is velocity actually declining? Because if velocity is declining in that final test, right, then that's unsustainable. But if somebody is velocity is stable, but the lactate is, you know, continuing, well, then that suggests that they're not actually at their maximum state and that lactate has nothing to do with it. But whatever, we're sort of getting, um, you know, outside of the significance because neither of those intensities are valued, are, are valid values to be using because I don't think they reflect what we're looking for. And if you don't believe that, you know, think about your experiences working out, you know, like this. If you're really trying to apply this scientific approach where you're, um, you know, and it's not bad to apply a, a scientific approach, um, but if you're doing it without clear understanding, as is the case with anything you try to do, the less you understand what you're trying to do, the less effective it's going to be. You find that it's kind of like running with a bag on your head, you know, and, and very much literally true is that you're reaching exhaustion. Your, your breathing is an absolute mess. You know, your body is murdering itself. It feels like from the inside out and maximum lactate steady state is just one example. And as I've tried to emphasize before, we try to look at this stuff on this podcast um, from a critical perspective, but in the manner that a historian would of like looking at almost in a sense, I guess, the historiographic approach to the development of ideas about training, you know, what consensus have formed over time and how have these um, allowed us to sort of distill out certain understandings. And I think for most of us, we don't sit down and look at this stuff uh, on that kind of a scale. But if we do, I think we start to realize why it is that we actually have the paper bag on our head, because 
um, you know, as is the nature of a historical perspective, you know, you're trying to ask questions about development, influence, and bias shaping ideology over time. And, and training is ultimately symbolic ideology. And it's a human, which is no surprise because training is a human behavior and all human behavior is ultimately, you know, um, ideologically driven, you know, through some sort of system of, um, you know, meaning, whether that's substantive or not, those meanings oftentimes are reduced to symbolic significance. So if we look at, and let's think about this on uh, a, a, t- a timeline, you know, what are some of the benchmarks in the development of these ideas about lactate threshold? So, you know, I think there's probably got to be other research out there, but um, I think these are some of the major ben- benchmarks. And I think, and this is from article written by uh, Indigo San Milan, what is lactate and a lactate threshold that was published in November of last year. And I think that, you know, you know, he's done enough research in the area that I feel confident that, you know, he's does, he is familiar with some of the significant benchmarks. And if he's pointing them out, they're probably worth thinking about. But if we just sort of think of these chronologically, uh, you know, in 1930, this thing called the Owl's Point is when you, um, you know, one of the first instances of using lactate and looking at the increase in lactate as identifying some sort of a critical metabolic point. Then in 1964, this point is first labeled as anaerobic threshold. And the belief is because this is a tipping point where we go from having reached the limit of supply of O2 um, and of oxygen, and now we have to be become anaerobic. In 1976, this is when anaerobic threshold is first defined as 4 millimoles. So it seems that in the 1970s is when we're starting to get these specific millimole values. Um, but we're also seeing in uh, 1979, the onset of blood lactate accumulation is defined as the point of plus one millimole in lactate concentration. So, and I've talked about in other episodes that your lactate will go along and it will be steady and then it will, at some point, as you increase intensity, start to increase. And usually what people see is it, it goes up by one. I think it can also go up by a little more, but generally the pattern is that if it goes up by one and then the intensity goes up again, it will not come back down. Um, and 1981, um, you have onset of blood lactate accumulation, and you might see this in the literature or you know, referenced in uh, general use as OBLA. Um, so now we see this divine, defined as four millimoles of blood lactate. So again, that four number. And if you've listened to content on this, you see a lot of people confidently just regurgitate these numbers. And I think that's because the historical perspective is not usually considered to be a necessary intellectual skill in, you know, thinking about training and coaching and uh, endurance sports um, and and how we should approach those in terms of our best practice. Um, In 1981, we also see maximum steady state as a term is defined as two millimoles. So now we're, I think we're starting to see um, this idea that there's, you know, clear conflict, right? Now I would look at this conflict and I would say the conflict is really about what lactate threshold is. Okay, not that the conflict is about, um, you know, where the two respective thresholds are. And I'm going to get to that a little bit more about how I think that really I don't think there's ever been much of a, uh, you know, evidence-based assertion that there are these multiple thresholds. I think it's people arguing about 
um, what the threshold is. And we're seeing right within this timeline that people are arguing for very different intensities. Um, and if you've done any training where you've used a lactate threshold, you probably know that four millimol is, you know, pretty difficult. And, you know, imagine trying to follow a training schedule over the long term over, you know, like with my, my example of 278 days when, you know, I'm seeing a, a decay. And if you're listening to this just on um, the podcast, then you want to take a look at this, but uh, you don't have time to check out um, the video on YouTube, you can um, go to our Instagram and I posted this there as well. So then a couple other benchmarks. In 1983, um, lactate threshold is introduced as a term where we have blood lactate is defined as a nonlinear plus one millimole increase. So similar to that 1979 non-set of lactate, blood lactate accumulation. Also in 1983, uh, maximum steady state workload, um, blood lactate is nonlinear. And in 2003, um, sorry, we didn't finish that thought. Um, and hold on. In 1983, maximum steady state workload, blood lactate is um, defined as, you know, three millimole. Um, when you get to three millimole, if it's been a nonlinear uh, increase, that's what we're looking at there. Um, but again, I think the nonlinear thing is maybe sort of um, ambiguous, right? And I could be confusing that with other stuff, right? Because this stuff becomes so interchangeable about the language here. Um, and some people might be steady at that. And that's where you could be steady at three millimole in that MLSS protocol. But if you're looking at it in terms of what's my, what's the point of like, and that's where onset of blood lactate accumulation, that should be defined as the point at which lactate like starts to increase. And I don't really see how people get to four and not already have hit that, right? But you can see this, just thinking about these instances, right? We start to become very confused. Um, and then 2003, that's when we have the maximum lactate steady state come in and we just, talked about that, right? This idea of, well, what's the maximum millimole at which it can stay steady for a constant rate of work over a given interval of time? So how about some real-world data? Um, I think in the last episode, I talked about uh, Stephen Levitt and Freakonomics and how, you know, an economics perspective on this stuff is to say, well, we have all of this data from what people are actually doing, actually experiencing, Let's take a look at that. Now, I don't have access to everybody's in the world uh, training data, but we go back to my example, right, of, you know, my regression essentially. And, you know, this is a scattered range of, you know, 640s to 740s and is generally trending towards, uh, sorry, the, you know, might be a period, like there's a period in the middle there where I have maybe a, a half a dozen sessions where I'm, you know, getting down 655, 640s, and then it just goes back up. And, you know, I think that we could argue, um, well, for me as an athlete, you know, maybe I just suck lemons and I'm not really, you know, making the effort and I'm not staying mentally tough. But I think training is behavioral. And, you know, if it's not, if we're not able to engage with it, then it just, it's, is it really effective? And I would suggest the answer is no, because what we're experiencing is something that's, you know, sort of more Sisyphistic. And even in this data, when the training is more frequent, right, or the density seems to be greater, um, it's still, it doesn't really break the trend, right? You might have a small period and where you're just sort of hovering. And the other thing too is those periods are just sort of, it's like in contrast to this other data. It's like, what well, was progressing there? Was it or were you just, was I just sort of forcing my way, 
you know, down to these paces out of a sense of, well, maybe if I start running 650 pace, then this will feel easier, you know, but eventually you just find that you get completely crushed by this, right? And that's why I say this intensity, these high intensity definitions of lactate threshold are Sisyphistic. And as a consequence, you'll see things like, uh, you know, Lionel Sanders and uh, Sam Long being like, forget lactate, lactate's totally useless, you can't use it, it's not reliable for anything, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I I don't obviously um, communicate with um, people in that uh, space of athletic training. But I think that it's certainly the case that um, essentially that we see that probably the abandonment is due to the fact that they're experiencing something you know, like the trend that I'm describing, right, is you're trying to apply this supposed intensity and you're not really experiencing the progression. Now, I don't know if they're putting this uh, data down in a spreadsheet so they can try to model it visually. I think as an athlete who does this stuff, you are engaged with it. So you can really just kind of tell if it doesn't seem to be working. And, you know, when you're at a level of professional uh, professionalism and you really like need to progress, I think you're actually maybe more likely to say we need to abandon this. So lactate threshold though, I think has to be then a point at which if you train below that intensity, you're seeing a very different result than if you train above that intensity. Okay. And here's an example of that. The For nine weeks this summer, um, in the beginning of July, uh, I had actually pulled uh, muscle in my uh, chest and shoulder, and I was concerned, you know, like, can I even run fast enough to be training effectively? And so I went to uh, the track and I did a lactate test. I jogged for 10 minutes. Um, I ran what I thought was a like steady but regular running effort not a workout effort for 10 minutes and then I did 10 minutes of what I thought threshold was and after the 10 minutes I thought was threshold which was maybe 647 pace or so I think uh, but actually my or 657 whatever right the point is nothing mind-boggling you know I, I would say by my standards my socially constructed standards of what training is very conservative. And I did that and it was like, wow, I'm at 5.2 millimoles. What the absolute hell is going on? (laughs) And, you know, but I, I was like, oh my goodness, I really do not know how hard I should be training. And I was like, well, you know, it is also really uncomfortable to run that fast um, because my diaphragm has to expand so much that this pulled muscle is making us absolutely miserable. So I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to, A, I had already reached this, you know, perspective that, well, you know, lactate threshold is really the point at which the last sort of intensity you can reach before you start to see an accumulation of lactate. But I just hadn't applied that to my running in terms of testing it because I just figured, well, I've been a runner for a long time. I'm not stupid. I know how that feels. And I guess uh, I am pretty stupid because... You know, I was training at a uh, lactate intensity that was over. And and that effort that I did on that track, um, you know, that was what I was doing for all of those sessions, you know. And 
I'd love to know what kind of lactate I was doing, you know, in, in college and in instances when I feel like I've been training harder, because to me that felt like that was under control. And so this this nine weeks period, um, what I basically saw is I saw a progression from, you know, maybe 824, 820 pace down to now 715 to 705 pace. And uh, that's the velocity. And when you look at it in terms of watts from a stride pod, you see a more, an even stronger, more evident uh, trend. But, you know, this and this progression is very linear, um, where when you see, you know, with this sort of things being bad for that long 278 day period, you're really just recognizing like these are all over the place. But here that it's also a very controlled uh, trend. And again, you check this out on the Instagram or the YouTube video if you want to see this for those of you listening on the podcast. And I th- it occurs to me, right, as I looked at this data after this nine weeks, that th- this is what's supposed to be happening. Yeah, maybe you're not always going to have that exact rate of progression. Otherwise, right, I'd be, you know, running a two-hour marathon, you know, in 15 months. And obviously that's not there. But, like, you should see a strong linear progression when you're training aerobically as you get down to that aerobic intensity. But I think, ironically, some of us will look at something like this and we're going to be like, well, that's pretty suspicious. I don't really trust that. And, um, you know, we need to go to the interrogation room and be like, well, is, is this a scam? Is somebody screwing with us? Are we being, you know, set up? Is this like a Pink Panther moment? But if you think about the data in a different way, I've got some, and this is also on uh, the Instagram page, but, um, you know, I've done a couple different, you know, maybe like eight or so different uh lactate step tests on the Wahoo kicker, at least that I've, you know, kept the data for. And I looked at those millimoles and, you know, what's that progression look like? And I talked about this in, you know, other episodes too. But if you look at it from the perspective of these sort of normal definitions for this like lower threshold and this higher threshold as recommending that I train at these wattages that are much, much greater than what I really should be doing. Um, and that's the kind of approach that led to this sort of scattered, regressive training, right? Where I was going out and I was working hard. It doesn't look like I'm working hard because the paces don't meet the standard of cool workout paces. But I was actually generating uh, a lot of, of lactate. Um, and the actual intensity that I should be training at, what I've adjusted to, is well below that. You know, so in... In some scales, um, you know, I should have been working out at maybe, you know, 220 to 280 watts could have been a lactate threshold zone. But according to um, the conventional paradigm, um, I should have been working out at 320 watts for LT1 and then I should have been working out 350 watts for LT2. And, you know, every time I would be like, okay, I need to like actually you know, train seriously, it just, it would fail. And, and, you know, for me having been, as is the case for, I think, you know, many of us, we can't always be at our, you know, uh, absolute fittest. And when I spent about seven years coaching uh, extracurriculars, um, you know, at the school where I teach, um, you know, that sort of led to a big general decline in my fitness. And so there's been, you know, a process of trying to, you know, get back to that. And, you know, it's, you know, 
in a general sense, you know, I've stronger and fitter and I've had some good, you know, efforts. I've done 350 watts in a time trial for, you know, 75 minutes and I've been happy with that, but it hasn't been consistent. And it's like, I kind of get to a certain point and I'm just kind of stuck there. And so for me, this last nine weeks, this progression is like a, a big a shift. It's a big change in experience. So this brings up to the concept of, well, let's talk about the difference between the standard threshold versus what I'm arguing is the correct threshold. And if you look, you know, training zones, how should I be training, training intensity, I think you can find as many as eight different training zones. And, you know, a lot, you can put these on a graph with, you know, level of work on one axis and exertion, energy demand on the other axis. And then you can throw in a VT2 and LT2 and a VT1 and an LT1 on there. And I think you end up with these zones that are, you know, you have, you look at all eight. When I sort of look around and I said, how many different zones can I combine together? You know, I end up with an eight zone model, which is active recovery, um, aerobic capacity, and then you get to LT1, at least according to the the model, tempo, sweet spot, and then you oftentimes see threshold defined as this, you know, over under zone where like threshold is, is this exact point that's right in the middle. And then you're over LT2, but you're somehow still within threshold. And then you get into VO2 max and then you get into anaerobic and you get into neuromuscular. And when you look at these graphs, these graphics or uh, graphs of these kinds of intensities, it's very compelling because it's usually very neat and it sort of um, looks well considered and, you know, it's colorful and, and whatever. But I think this is a bunch of BS. Okay, this this is my um, conclusion. And I say this as somebody who, when I coached cross country and we had, um, in 2017, we had the best performing cross country team in the history of the sport in the state. And that's just what happened. Um, and I, and I, so I say this as somebody who had that experience and I was, you know, working with those athletes on a, you know, the seven zone model. So that would have been active recovery, aerobic capacity, um, tempo threshold, VO2 max anaerobic. But the reality is that I wasn't probably actually doing that. I was using those distinctions of zones to try to communicate with the athletes about, well, these are the different levels of exertion. But really, what I primarily tried to do was I tried to do easy aerobic training. I tried to do, you know, aerobic steady training. And then when we did faster running, I always tried to keep the reps really short um, and, you know, usually less than 45 seconds because my feeling um, at the time, and I would still think that there's probably some uh, general merit to this, but my philosophy at the time was, okay, if it's longer than 45 seconds, the legs are going to start to get tired. And so in the reality, like I thought I was using this model, but, and the other thing too, is we weren't using heart rate monitors and we weren't uh, using lactate testing. So it was all subjective. So, you know, it was using the language of the zones to say, you know what, you know how you can feel this effort and it gets harder, right? Trying to talk to the kids and figure out how hard are they working. And, you know, we weren't maybe actually applying that model. I think that's one of the other things that's tricky, like with the, you know, top triathletes who are, you know, jumping off the idea of using lactate almost as soon as they jump on it because they're like, nope, I'm not seeing the performance jump. I know what I can do. I know what I've done in the past. 
Um, this isn't adding any value. You know, I'm going back to, to what I think works because, right, you know, I, I'm trying to pursue this professional career in this domain. So if we start to strip this stuff down, you know, well, how can we peel this back to something simpler? Well, I think the first thing that we can do is we can get rid of neuromuscular. And so then, and then we can also get rid of uh, sweet spot. And then we kind of have this five zone model, right? And this is also very common, I think, um, you know, active recovery, aerobic capacity, and then there's this tempo zone in between VT1 and LT2, and then there's threshold, VO2 max, and anaerobic. And um, I think we can pull that back further. I'm sorry, I misspoke. That would be a six zone model. The five zone model would just say active recovery, aerobic, and then threshold one, and then tempo, and then you get to lactate threshold two, and then you're in threshold, and you're in, um, and then you go up to VO2 max. Okay, and then I think a simpler model, which is what you see with polarized training, is this concept of three zones, where you have zone one, zone two, zone three, and that's where you have the 80-20, right, where you're saying you're spending 80% of your training is in zone one, and then 15% of your training is zone two, and five, uh, zone three, excuse me, and then 5% is zone two, and then people say 80-20, because it's 80% uh, is really easy and 20% is really hard. And so everybody's like, okay, I need to go really hard 20% of the time. <laughs> and, you know, that's just not correct. I mean, that 80-20 conclusion is really based on behavior. Uh, you know, from Steven Seiler's research of trying to do kind of a Stephen Levitt type, type thing, I don't know or have any evidence to suggest he was read econo- uh, Freakonomics and was like, wow, I should look at training like this. But, you know, he tried to look at real world data of an athletes and behaviorally, that's what he saw. So from elite athletes. So maybe those elite athletes are doing too, still doing too much high intensity. Because um, there's also the study about the most successful women's Nordic skier of all time who had her five years of dominance when she cut her, her uh, intensity over the polarized zone one and half and then increased her total volume of training and increased her time in zone one from 85% of her training time to 93% of her training time. And if we think about this, um, you know, the best way I think to really try to make this into meaning is to try to think about, well, what's really happening to the body? And so this is how I conceptualize this. And I'm sure that there are, you know, I mean, I'm sure I know there are details and you know specificities to understanding and you know how these pathways and processes work. But in terms of conceptually, you know, what do we really want to try to grasp to think about what's going on? So, you know, the body is trying to generate energy to do work, and the way it does this efficiently, you know, up until that LT one point, um, and I'm not even going to call. Um, you know, that second ventilatory threshold. I'm not even going to call that LT2 because I don't think that exists. I think there's a point at which you transition from that steady breathing, sort of, okay, I'm starting to notice my breathing in LT1 to sort of ragged breathing. So I think, yeah, there's, you know, evidence for a second ventilatory threshold, but I don't think that necessarily means anything is happening. And I'll, and I'll show you why and explain why I think that's the case. But so right through mitochondria and in the presence of oxygen, you can create energy. And this energy can come from sugars and lactate and fat, all of which, you know, I guess basically can be converted into the pyruvate. And then through the mitochondria, right, you get energy out of that. And when you think about this, the mitochondria's utilization increases 
you know, across that zone one up to a point in which it's 100% engaged at VT1. And that's why the lactate starts to accumulate in the blood. And I understand, you know, some of the vernacular or the uh, linguistics around this is to say, well, the blood is being cleared into the, uh, I'm sorry, the lactate is being cleared in, cleared into the blood. But I, I prefer to think of this as, you know, lactate is energy, so it's either it's being utilized or it's not. And, um, you know, I know that there's this thing where, you know, as you're sort of going harder and harder, the type 2 muscle fibers, which do more glycolysis and that has more lactate, et cetera, et cetera. But essentially, right, if the lactate is somewhere else, then it's not able to be used, right? And then when you slow down, well, now the lactate is going away. So obviously you have the capacity to use that, uh, you know, that energy. And as you move through that point and you go past that point, you get to hit that peak level of mitochondrial use, you can go harder and harder, but you're not, you can't use the mitochondria anymore. They're, you know, they have a maximum level of utilization. And if you think about things from the perspective of adaptive responses and, you know, kind of an epigenetic thing of like, how do you get the genes to express themselves in certain ways? You know, I don't think there's any good logical uh, argument for why would be the case that, well, when something is at 100% utilization, like you can't use something more than 100%. I know that in, you know, culture, it's normal. say, so, well, I gave 110%. Well, you can't, right? You, you either have the maximum or you don't. So all the body is going to know is like, oh, wow, we're in a situation where we're using all the mitochondria. So it follows that you can work harder than this and get aerobic development. And obviously a lot of people have done that and do that today. But the way this is tracking um, against the lactate threshold curve is basically that, um, you know, below lactate threshold, it looks like mitochondria can keep up with the influx of lactate and they're meeting energy demands. And working over lactate threshold is probably still maximally taxing the mitochondria. The amount of lactate increases because lactate is supplied based on mitochondrial capacity. Um, but like training over lactate threshold only creates good training because it's also maxing out the mitochondria. It's not doing more beneficial. It's not doing anything that you didn't already do when you, you hit that threshold that people call LT1 and I'm suggesting is the threshold. And once you've peaked aerobically in training intensity or training work that you're doing, there's no point in going harder. Um, what you want to do is accumulate more work at that state because that's how you're going to increase um, the stimulus and, and the response, right? And we know that's true because people who train more and in general practice more tend to do much better. And so when we think about this concept of these three zones of polarized training, which is sort of the considered to be this like, you know, radically simple concept of how to train and uh, whatnot, um, well, it's oftentimes suggested that, well, the lactate is steady in zone one, it increases maybe arithmetically through zone two, and then it starts increasing even more um, in, in zone three. And I have a great graph of a lactate test I did um, with my brother against my lactate where he is dead level at uh, 0.7 millimole up until 320 watts, and then it shifts and it just goes up at a you know continuing rate um, all the way up until, you know, he stopped at like eight millimoles or whatever. And I think that that's just evidence of the fact that, you know, this idea that there's this nuance to these 
lines is different. You know, it looks more, it's more of a curve. And I think if we look at the nature of the curve, it, it's exponential. And, uh, you know, when I say people are randomly picking a point on there and declaring that to be LT2, if you think about an exponential uh, function, now I don't have a degree in, in mathematics, so um, I apologize if I'm undercharacterizing this, but, you know, you know, from one reference, you know, this exponential curve, um, you know, quote, in applied settings, exponential functions model a relationship in which a constant change in the independent variable gives the same proportional changes, that is percentage increase or decrease in the dependent variable. And to me, the language in there that I focus on is saying that the change is constant. So even though, um, even though it's not linear, it's constant. And so when you're looking at the curve and you're saying, okay, this thing is happening here, it's getting steeper there. I feel like that's not the right interpretation because that's actually a, the relationship isn't changing. The relationship is constant. The relationship changed when it went from linear to exponential. And that's the lactate threshold. And that's is has to be literally the point at which lactate accumulation starts to occur. So I say that there actually is no second threshold. So if there's no second threshold, um, that means then there isn't a zone two and a zone three. And that means that there's just maybe zone two. And, you know, if we go a little further, I think that this in our logic here, I think this matches history where we first had anaerobic organisms and then we had aerobic organisms which evolved out of that. And so then I say, well, if we're training, then basically there's really one intensity. And this, I would say, is kind of the state at which we're challenging maximum mitochondrial capacity. And as we get to sort of the high end of that range, um, that's VT1 and LT2. That's how I would define that. And that's, you know, at this um, high level of aerobic pressure, you know, up to the point at which you start to accumulate, but, you know, not going over that. And I would define this as stamina. I think that's what stamina is. And I think when, you know, literate athletes are training, and I think, um, you know, at some point, you know, one of my ambitions with this podcast is to try to do some research and try to identify what are the different individuals or training groups over time that have basically independently arrived at this conclusion and have sort of taught um, themselves or taught others in their, you know, training cohort um, how to identify this, you know, using different language, you know, like my dad, you know, saying that he tried to feel like he was making deposits and not withdrawals. You know, to me, I think that's a distinction when um, Gustav Eden says that, you know, threshold, over threshold, hands on knees, under threshold, standing upright normally. And then I think, you know, around this stamina, right, we have an endurance and we have speed. And so sort of when we're kind of dropping below that intensity, um, we're challenged that maximum mitochondrial capacity. We're sort of maybe more endurance-like. And then we go over that, maybe we're pushing into things that are more sort of akin to speed. And that like fitness, the fitness is coming from stamina. Stamina is fitness. That threshold development, that's fitness. And like your speed can only function up over your stamina to so much of a degree, especially when you're talking about stuff that's effective. And so when we look at, again, think about my progression over that nine-week period, that last nine weeks, that's a product of, of training in stamina. That was the change that I made. And um, I think this is validated through the data um, that, you know, I used with lactate threshold testing too, you know, because the other question is, is the pace improving um, but I'm just sort of pushing back up towards working out at higher and higher 
you know, millimoles because they've already demonstrated a tolerance, um, not necessarily in a good way, but a tolerance and just sort of like I will tolerate it, um, you know, mentally, a tolerance to do workouts at five to six millimoles and be like, oh, yeah, that was a good threshold workout. Right. You know, duh, whatever that means, um, you know, but in the test I did at the beginning of July at 285 watts, rate 38 pace, um, you know, was my first step. Um, and then I did 315 watts, um, or 742 pace was my second step. And that was like 1.8 millimole. My first step was like 0.8. Uh, and then my third step was, um, 345 watts or 657 pace. And like I said, that was over five millimoles. And so then just approximately a month later, uh, on August 8th, I did a step test again. I did, uh, 294 watts. And each of these steps is about nine to 11 minutes. Um, and that was 836 pace. And there my, uh, lactate was one. And then I did 306 watts for about eight minute pace. Um, and there my lactate was like 1.1. And then I did uh, 333 uh, watts or 728 pace. And there my lactate was like 1.8. And then I did about 367 watts. Um, and there my, uh, well, 644 pace. And there my lactate was uh, four. Point uh, two, I think. And what's really meaningful about that is that's a significant change because, um, you know, whereas before at, I couldn't even get up, I wasn't even getting up to 600 uh, and, sorry, 600 watts, excuse me, too many numbers, right? Getting up to 644, I, I capped out at 657. So at 657 pace, right, was 345 watts. And so we can compare, we can say, well, that was 5.2. And then if we look at um, the, what the, was the lactate in, at this point in the test, well, now it was like 3.5 or closer to three, right? So that's a significant change. And that's what we want to see. We want to see less lactate at different intensities because, yeah, you're, you're going to race over lactate threshold, right? But the point is, how do you train to bring that down so that when you go to race and you're working over lactate threshold, you have success with that? Because, you know, my dad is showing that, you know, training at those higher intensities isn't doing diddly squat. And, you know, when you compare these together and you look at these two graphs side by side, you know, it's a, it's a noticeable shift in the curve. And I haven't retested. Um, I did a gravel race you know, last weekend when it would have been the 8th or the 9th of September, but I'm going to try to, you know, I'm obviously not going to do a lactate test after doing a race when my legs are totally trashed. So when we compare these trends, you know, we're looking at a totally different like process of training and then a process of response, you know, and looking at a progression over 60 days. I mean, the fact that you're progressing at all when the original exemplar is a non-progression, uh, but I think there are people who do get a progression going for themselves training at these higher intensities. You know, and I would ask you to, you know, question or reflect on, you know, is your pro- how good is your progression? How strong is your progression? Is your progression better than mine? And I think one of the obvious criticisms, which I want to acknowledge because I also think it's really interesting, is you could say, well, is what's going on here that you're having a uh, a drop back down to that same intensity? But as I just tried to articulate, well, no, now we're actually getting to where we're running at paces and we're producing less lactate. Whereas at these other paces, I was just never improving 
um, that lactate number. So you, I was getting myself to run faster, but I was just producing more lactate. So here I backed off, I started slower, and then I've worked back down, and I've spiked training at the lactate, you know, limits. And there have been certainly runs where I've gone out and I've run, you know, harder, but I've always been, you know, by mistake, you know, always trying to find that intensity, um, you know, that's the right balance. And there was an instance where I did six by 2000 meters um, at, you know, about, you know, average 707 pace on the road. And, you know, the last three reps were at 650 watts. And, you know, I knew that I knew I was going too fast, but I'm not an elite athlete. You know, part of it is I, you know, when I feel good and I'm, you know, feeling myself, you know, I'm going to let myself, you know, run a little bit, let myself ride a little bit. You know, what I'm trying to do is not just sort of, you know, I have those experiences actually more frequently, you know, now that I've, I've backed off and it's more rewarding because I'm doing that and I'm, I'm progressing, you know, and so even though I'm not running faster, it's like, well, okay, now I'm floating and I, I was running with Caleb McVeigh and I said, you know, I know that I'm probably going too fast, but like, this is, you know, what I like, this is what it's all about for me. And so, you know, you're looking at this, you're thinking about how am I picking the right session to do, right? And so, you know, I'm finding and I'm, I'm suggesting that, you know, the solution is not to do, you know, uh, just run at steady state, you know, okay, I got to run at lactate threshold. And I don't think that's beneficial. And, and um, you know, especially because if you just run at lactate threshold right on that line, you're probably going to end up drifting over a the lactate will go up and then B, you're going to move into, you know, using fatigue, fatigue systems more, um, which then leads to more fatigue subsequently, which then limits training. But a lot of people think of this stuff as the and this sort of this dead space in training of you just go out and fill all these time and these hours and these miles that are sort of aerobic, but like it's not really defined. It's just like go out and run eight miles. And you're like, yeah, like when I ran in college, there was no discussion about what would happen on the days that weren't workouts. We just sort of went out and ran. And I think that was a huge lost opportunity because that was the majority of the time that uh, we spent, you know, training really and there was it was totally directionless and, and formless and I think people were going out doing totally different things you know and I suggest you know an opportunity cost perspective that there's a third option here and I think the third option is to you know do your run where you're breaking it into intervals now in the sense you go to a track trash yourself recover trash yourself recover trash yourself but you know just spend you know five minutes maybe four minutes at lactate threshold, then do, you know, a couple minutes where you're going very easy. And so now, right, you're going to get time at that. You're going to increase that stimulus. And I would suggest that I don't think that the stimulus like turns off or it's like, well, if I do eight times five minutes, I'm only getting 40 minutes. Why don't I just do 40 minutes? That's probably better. I, I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, the stimulus, you know, maybe tapers or wanes because if the stimulus turned off, then the only time you would get fitness development is when you literally were in the act of exercising. And that's obviously not true. So when you use intervals and you have longer recovery, you're actually getting more value out of your 40 minutes of LT. So think about that. There's like a big idea that I'm confident very few of us have ever really considered, right? Because we say the work interval is productive and usually the norm is to get more benefit, you need to decrease the rest. Well, if the rest is active and you're moving and you're st- and easily but aerobically, you can actually get more work done because you can spread that out. You could do five minutes LT, five minutes easy, 
right? And do that eight times. Well, that would be 80 minutes. That would be twice as much. You're, you're increasing the stimulus without doing more work. And that's probably, you know, you could do eight times five minutes LT, five minutes easy. And that would probably be um, more beneficial and definitely more beneficial and less fatiguing than just doing 65 minutes at just continuously at LT. And that's how we should be thinking about training strategically because, you know, goals are important. And, you know, part of my thought process on this, I think the book Easy Interval Method um, by, um, and I'll get to this in a second, the book Easy Easy Interval Method, you know, is a, I think really offers some further evidence on this. Uh, and I'm trying to do be conscientious about pointing out um, sources, you know, because, you know, evidence is the basis of argument here. And I'm, I'm definitely making a, a pitch for something that I think goes against the grain. Um, you know, but I think I look at four goals. I want to achieve stimulus. I want to achieve volume. I want to uh, limit fatigue and I want to maintain quality of movement. Okay. Everybody knows what it's like to feel like you're falling apart and start staggering. It's not enjoyable. You know, that's a sign of fatigue. And when you have a great race, your movement is you're powerful the whole way. Right. So trying to always run with good movement is important. You know, I don't know if that's a marginal gain or not. Right. But, you know, I think a marginal gain is great when we're looking at, you know, at alternative training strategy that is like the is a regression. Right. So uh, marginal gains are pretty good when the opportunity cost is regressive. So uh, Klaus Luck, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but published this book in 2006, uh, Easy Interval Training. And I think it's one of the more interesting, thought provoking books I've read about training. And I've, you know, example of his approach to this, you know, which, you know, I think to me really adds a lot of weight to the idea of, you know, you're still getting training benefit during the recovery. The recovery isn't somehow like less beneficial. And, you know, one of the themes of the book is, hey, you don't have to train as much. And, you know, I'm always suspicious of that because, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, that sounds cheap. And so I kind of looked at it. And what he in the book, he focuses on like, look, this is the essential stuff. So then you just say, okay, what does that actually look like? So he suggests if you take his sort of idea of what is a good training day, he says do six by 1,000. And if you look at the schedule, it says six by 1,000. You're like, wow, six by 1,000, that's not much. That That's not that much running. How can I get better off of doing that? Well, then you, you read and you, you break it down, and it would be 15 to 20 minutes warming up, eight by 30 meter strides. And then for 10.8K, you're basically alternating between 1,000 meters at threshold and then 800 meters easy running. And of course, if you do these thousands at this so-called LT2, um, it doesn't work. And he says, what's interesting in the book, which reflects this confusion, is he says that uh, you know a lot of times lactate threshold, you know, he's saying is well, it's like 10k pace. But then he'll say like, you know, I did a lot of my 1,000 slower than marathon pace. So I think, and to me, well, that's what's important. Not this like, hey, put this. This is the physiological information to put in here, you know, kind of like we're holding you at gunpoint, <laughs> you know, this is what you need to tell people because he's saying that you can calculate your thousands pace or determine your thousands pace off of a test of 10,000 meters racing, you know, about 30 minutes, which is to me is very much conversant to the maximum lactate steady state concept. And that came at that concept, right? you know, was sort of put out there in 2003 and the first edition of this book was published in 2006, you know, so that can't be coincidence. But then he's saying, well, the reality is I would do this stuff at slower than marathon pace. 
a lot of the time, which is totally different <laughs> from that maximum lactate steady state. So, and that's where I say, what is the actual data? Let's look at the historical evidence. You know, what are the actual practices? But let's like look at um, not just take those practices and interpret them against the a physiological curve, but say, how do they actually? you know, describe what they're doing and what parts of their training were actually effective versus what are the stuff they did just because they felt that they had to. And so after that 10.8 kilometers, you know, three by 100 meter strides, 15 to 20 minutes cooling down. So that's 83 to 93 minutes, not counting the strides. So how does that compare to our goals? Well, the stimulus targets stamina for about an hour. Um, the stimulus doesn't turn off during the recovery jogs, right? So you're getting that continuous stimulus. If you're a stronger runner, that's going to be an 11 to 14 mile training session. You know, that's a big, a, a sub, substantial run. You know, that's 70, that's on, you know, pace for a 70 mile to 95 mile week or whatever. Then you've got recovery intervals in there, which are going to limit your fatigue accumulation. So that makes training more sustainable. And, you know, I think that that interval format versus steady state format also ensures quality of movement. I mean, most of the interval training I did, you know, especially as a younger athlete and what, you know, you learn from that is like, actually, you're that's when you have the worst movement because you're totally failed. And, you know, I think that's something Lydia talks about in his books, too, is that, you know, apart from the fact that they couldn't control form, they couldn't peak on the day, you know, they, they couldn't be ready. They couldn't. He said they couldn't plan training because you would just feel so inconsistent from day to day. And that when they pulled back and started training aerobically, then they could actually have a training strategy because they knew every day they'd be able to show up and do this. And so then example of some of the workouts that, you know, I've done. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, you know, now as I'm saying, you know, Looney Tunes thinking more and more about, you know, increasing my recovery time. But to be honest, the part of it for me is, you know, I, I'm doing a lot of my training on around my work schedule, you know, during the work year, I'm trying to run uh, as a teacher, trying to run at 530 in the morning. And, you know, you got a limited amount of time. And I don't, you know, I want to, you know, do exercise that I find enjoyable and productive within that time. Um, but I, you know, also now incorporating, you know, slower stuff, and I'm interested to see how that affects my, uh, my progression trend. So three examples, you know, would be 12 by 800, 100 meter jog, uh, five to six by 2000 meter with a 145 jog, 16 by 600 with 30 second jog. You know, those are primarily what I rotated through in doing this. And I think, again, the goals, um, you know, all of those intervals are targeting that stamina or LT intensity. So stimulus, target stamina for about an hour, doesn't turn off during the recovery jogs. Remember this. Okay, so it's okay to take, you know, longer recovery. Um, I think if you're pulling down a little bit below um, LT, then you can you can take the shorter jogs. And I think sometimes you do the shorter jogs if you want more of a kind of an endurance challenge to your stamina work. Um, and if you have longer jogs, I think you can go about a little bit quicker while still staying uh, in under lactate threshold because you're not accumulating because um, the reps are short enough. Volume for me is, you know, eight miles for a stronger runner. Maybe you get up to 11 miles. Um, you know, recovery is limiting the f fatigue accumulation and quality of movement is still there. And when you look at this in terms of power using stride pod, um, you see even even stronger trend of improvement over that nine weeks. You know, I've, you know, improved from working out at about 300 to 309 watts to now I'm just going out there and I'm just sort of drifting at 300 
and 45 watts. And like I said, it's been a month since my last test, so I need to verify that, um, you know, the the data. But I think you know the tr- it's holding with the trend. Um, and you know, you can see this data on Instagram. I know I keep repeating that, but I want people listening on the podcast to know it's there if they want the visual. And then even my recovery watts I thought was interesting because I also took a look at this data and the watts I run in the recovery has have also gone up. So I think that's reflecting, you know, that overall relationship. And if you say, well, what can you control for? So if you look at heart rate scaled, um, you know, from my resting heart rate, which, you know, maybe is like 40, 42, something like that, you know, up to max running heart rate, you know, I'll ever get up to is 212. Um you know, yeah, there's been a slight trend in increase in, in heart rate. Um, and, you know, that could be from a couple different things. I, I don't think that using heart rate as a laser precision training thing is useful. I think that people lean into heart rate uh, way too much. And maybe a part of that is the uh, maximum aerobic function method from Philip Maffetone and, you know, going back to like... Um, Mark Allen and, you know, the heart rate monitor, and maybe there's some history of popularization of that, especially in triathlon training. Um, Whereas runners, you know, I think are more sort of ambiguous about it and cyclists are, you know, more inclined to look at the power meter. Um, But like, you know, the heart rate, like whatever, you know, like there's so many things that like your heart rate will will go up as a result of so many different factors um, that I, I just don't think you can really rely on it. And my hypothesis here is that you know, a lot of the training sessions in the last couple of weeks, the weather's been a lot worse. You know, there was a period in this data where my heart rate was like started being, you know, under 150 and, you know, it started workouts. And well, that was when it was like 58 degrees out and low humidity and a little breezy in the morning um, when I was, you know, in Maine for a little while. And then, you know, come back to central southern New Hampshire and especially the last two weeks, it's been awful weather uh, and, you know, the heart rate's a little bit higher. I mean, I think that's totally consistent with that. Um, and you can see that one workout where I talked about going a little crazy is actually the anomaly where I had an average heart rate of 173 and I checked the lactate and I was like, oh man, I kind of screwed that up, um, right? But we're not perfect, right? We're looking for uh, pro- pro- um, progression in methodology. And I think it, you know, shows it's hard to break these habits. You know, we've a lot of us have been taught our whole athletic athletic life to like respond to certain cues. And um, by the way, for those of you waiting for part two of that Who's On First podcast to talk more about using cues to identify threshold, that, that is still forthcoming. Fitness is fitness, though. Okay, these workout models, I know I'm using running as a reference point uh, because that's where my data uh, is for this stuff. Um, you know, like I, a lot of the riding I do is on a gravel bike. And I don't uh, have a power meter on it. So I don't really have good data for that for comparison. And heart rate stuff on a bike is even more totally useless because if you're right, when you're riding outside, it's just all over the places that terrain varies. But these workout models, you could apply these to any endurance sport. And especially if you focus on the principle, I think a lot of people say, well, is this the magic workout? Is that the magic workout? It's no, because it's about the goals, right? Are you achieving the goals? Do you understand how to achieve them? But a lot of people want to be able to get good training without understanding their training. And, you know, this pace progression, I mean, I, you know, I think to remember the pace progression that I experienced, my running velocity progression over the last nine weeks, that's training done at true lactate threshold, you know, which I'm calling maximum mitochondrial capacity or, you know, the onset of blood lactate. 
um, accumulation, right? OBL, OBLA, and you know that would be in that I think the 1979 definition. And I'd emphasize that I've never worked out this slowly for running, you know, in over 20 years. Um, I've never gone out and said I'm going to do a workout with periods of work and periods of recovery and worked out this slow. But I've also probably never experienced this kind of a progression. It raises a really interesting question because in, um, physically I'm much stronger um, you know, than I've ever been in terms of my max uh, strength. I'm also a little bit heavier, which sort of limits uh, some of the responsiveness from that. But like, it is an adjustment uh, mentally to sort of shift away from this constructed notion of how hard we should work. And when you think, when I think about this, like I think I did like 262 total repetitions um, over this nine weeks, 262 repetitions because I did 28 workouts and it was less than 60 days, um, I think, you know, and the velocity progresses, um, you know, and the watts progress. And it also happens in, in the recovery. And, and there were, you know, several, you know, stretches where I might do two, three, or at one point I did four workouts consecutively. You know, and after um, one point, I think I did five, actually. And, you know, at that point, on the sixth day, uh, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm a little tired, right? But, you know, that's totally different, right? I did, so doing five workouts in a row, um, you know, of 12 by, and they were all 12 by 800, you know, ask yourself if you did uh, wanted to accumulate, you know, that many repeat 800s, um, you know, that how long would that take you, right? How long would it take you to do that, right? That's whatever that is that 62 um, or is that 74, right? 74, whatever. Um, it's hard to podcast and do math at the same time. Um, but when you do this, look at that. How long would it take you to accumulate that many 800s doing a conventional workout model. You may be going to do six. You may be going to do it once a week, maybe twice a week. You know, that's you're looking at a significant amount of time. So what we're seeing is an increase in the density of training. And what we're seeing is happening is when you have an increase in volume um, plus frequency, you have an increase in progression. And when you have a decrease in volume plus a decrease in frequency, you have what I would just say is a null stimulus. And I think that's reflected by the regression. So let's think about some conclusions from this. What can we really understand? Well, I think, first of all, training is behavioral, social, and cultural. We're sensitive to the symbolic meanings of training, that we're going to interpret the value of what we do based on the socially constructed significance of different kinds of workouts. And it's hard to change what we're doing because it's hard to separate from those systems of meaning. Hard workouts have value as like ritual acts. And these rituals, they signify transformation. And this is oftentimes more socially valued than real but non-visible uh, transformation training. Like what I've tried to sort of give uh, light to, right? Seeing is believing. I've tried to show that here and articulate that to the best of uh, my ability. A density, volume plus frequency equals improvement. Athletes need to see their training is not working in order to want to train, right? Symbolic value is ultimately not uh, good enough. You know, you're going to, at some point, most of us are going to say, yeah, I'm going to lose interest. And that's the difference between finding something that you're passionate about and, and being able to do it throughout your life versus having it, you know, be a phase. Like people are like, I one time I wanted to run a marathon, so I did, and then I never ran again. 
And, you know, understanding that adaptation requires a change in the sense of environment. Marine iguanas on the uh, Galapagos Islands will shrink their skeletons to save energy during El Nino. Think about that scale of adaptation. Um, Like, that's because the environment is different. Adaptation is environmentally driven, right? And that's not an evolutionary scale, right? Iguanas evolved to become these aquatic uh, animals that, you know, can swim in the ocean and on islands there and, you know, hold their breath for 15, 20 minutes, you know, eat the algae that grows on the rocks in the bottom of the seafloor. That's evolution. Adaptation, you know, adaptations are things, responses to the environment within an organism's lifetime. And that's what training is. You need to create those conditions, right? And when you have higher density of training, what a surprise that now we see adaptation starts to happen. And we know that adaptation is physiological and it's not just a psychological effect of, okay, I start slow and then I just get back up to the same pace again because now we have this improvement you know, using the lactate data as a reference point. So it's the immersion in the adaptive environment. That requires a lot of motivation, okay? Because to stay immersed in that and create that continual effect, that's hard. And when training is being done as intensively as a lot of these sort of mad scientist models, (laughs) you know, are (laughs) trying to get us to do, it's not going to work. And what we want to see is we need to see the improvement if we want to sustain that immersion. And when we look at this from the perspective of the aerobic calculator, which is what I have shown, like the one calculator over that longer period, you know, expo- you know, shows no progress. And so what a surprise that it gets boring and uninteresting. Nothing is happening. But when you can have controlled progression, well, now it's interesting, right? And when you can see that occurring, that's going to be engaging. And so if you build that model for yourself, you know, put that in a spreadsheet, you know, so that you can convert it into a graph and you can track that trend. Now you have something that you're going to want to engage with. So when we think about conclusions here, if you track your stamina, your LT workouts, then, you know, they should be frequent enough. If you have the right intensity, you'll be able to do them frequently enough. I think three to five times a week is a reasonable goal. Um, You'll start to see a trend in three to four weeks. And then you use this data to be responsive, okay? So now you can actually train responsively. And, you know, with athletes I coach, this is really what, you know, I want to work towards is that the highest level of coaching is to be able to not give people the schedule and be like, how'd the workout go? It was a tough one. Oh, good. You stuck through it. Great. Well, you got another workout later. Or, yep, here's the schedule. It's to be able to take the data and say, okay, I see what's happening. Now I can use this information to you know, figure out what intensity is right. Let's make the changes. Let's make the adjustment. And it's empowering because the coach and the athlete can both look at the data and recognize the trend. And then, you know, the athlete can talk about what they're feeling. And then the coach uses their knowledge to help, you know, interpret and guide, you know, the direction on that. And then you're, you're collaborating and collaboration is always more fun than autocracy. So my guideline would be if the trend is not showing improvement, A, increase frequency of training, B, increase volume per session of training, C, increase recovery between intervals in training. If the trend is not showing improvement, but you're experiencing fatigue, well then decrease density of training, Uh, check that your lactate levels are appropriate in your workouts, and then also check that you've correctly identified the value at which lactate accumulates. A lot of people over 
estimate that. Um, so testing that and finding that out correctly, ascertaining what that is, is really important um, because that's how you're going to periodically check. And then if you do that, you should see, you know, that progression change should occur, you know, and again, my nine weeks is the example of that. And one thing to be leery of, and I think this is also where the aerobic calculator will tell you this is happening. So if you have a uh, progression, so if my suddenly my uh, velocity just plateaus. So, you know, that would be the possibility that at some point I start cascading. And I'm just kind of coining this term here today, but I think cascading happens as a result of feeling good. Um, and when we feel feeling good, training causes us to then want to drift back into higher and non-productive intensities again. Well, the calculator will show you that plateau, you know, and it might take a little while, right, to see that happen. Um, but, you know, you eventually you'll realize that your velocity isn't progressing, but you feel, I feel like you're working harder. And then if you go, then you go as a lactate again and you say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going over. I, I overestimated my progress here. And I think this is where learning to feel the threshold is so important. Um, and that's why I've you know, talked about on some other episodes and going to continue exploring that on other episodes. You know, we have to learn the lactate intensity and then we're periodically verifying with the lactate test. And if you train for feel and you control using the lactate test, the power will rise naturally as your fitness improves. That's just going to be what happens. And using a uh, aerobic calculator to monitor for progression, right? If you're willing to do this, it's very simple um, and it's fun. Frankly, when things are going well, it's fun to look at yourself improving and and follow that. And it's you know increases, I think, motivation because it's like, oh, I can't wait to get another data point. I want to do another one of these so I can get another data point. Um, whereas people dreading and like, how can I force myself through the next training session? And I think this is better than waiting for the next training result. But ultimately, all training has to be done one day at a time. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Stay tuned for a forthcoming episode on queuing and probably some other episodes going further into particular nuances of applying this approach, uh, including in particular, how do you make a distinction between endurance and lactate threshold training? You can check us out on our Instagram at blackcatsrun. Let us know if you have any other topics you'd like us to discuss. We love the inspiration. We'll catch you next time.